Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You are listening to the TLS. This is Beyond Flesh and Blood. The Quest for Godlike Immortality by Michelle Pridmore Brown, a research fellow at the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley, and science editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books, from the issue of June 24, 2022. One July night in 2009, Harry Parker, a 6'2", 26-year-old white British Army captain, was striding with nimble ease at the head of a line of soldiers across a field in Afghanistan when he stepped on an improvised explosive device. He would not have survived the blast had it happened a year or two earlier, or if he had been left in the dirt for minutes longer, if a combat medicine technician hadn't been patrolling right behind him, if a helicopter with a trauma team hadn't been hovering nearby, if he hadn't made it to the best field hospital in the world 18 minutes later, and if he hadn't been wheeled straight into the operating theater when he arrived, instead of to the processing room to be resuscitated first. Parker was not so much saved as salvaged by modern technologies of speed and survival, and by the people who knew how to use them. In those 18 minutes and after, he writes in the book titled Hybrid Humans, he was brought back from death multiple times, shorn of one leg below the knee during the explosion he was ferried to London, where fungal spores blasted deep into his remaining leg, triggered gangrene. He flirted with death again before that leg too was amputated, above the knee. When he emerged months later into sustained non-drugged consciousness, he labored for almost a year moving foreign objects, prosthetics, 
to emulate walking and forge new neural connections. He became a hybrid human, balanced on sockets 12% by weight non-human. He had a new origin story, or rather he had a before, when he had been what people call lucky. In his parentage, his appearance, his schooling, his ease of manner and movement. The sort of boy who would naturally be chosen as the lead in a school play. And he had an after, when he became a double amputee projecting unluckiness. Would it not have been better to let him die? He imagined visitors to his ward in London asking. Hybrid humans is an argument for the work of salvage. Yet, as if to weigh the scale on the other side, Parker makes clear the many costs involved in becoming hybrid. He will age more quickly. The hours and days after injury was a negotiation. Life now, in return for less life and poorer quality life later. There are also relational negotiations. Not being lucky is embarrassing. Children gawk. So do adults, if surreptitiously. According to a study he cites, 67% of people in the UK find it hard to talk to the disabled. There is the question of desire and of what a romantic partner will find under the camouflage of clothes and prosthetics. Odd-looking stumps rubbed raw. Asymmetric muscle wastage. A deeply trenched scar. A missing testicle. An elephant man bum-shuffling to the shower. Parker's body is a reminder of what bombs can do and of mortality. This, too, is a negotiation. Bombs don't do sexy, he quips. There are other compromises, the byproducts of having interfaces, stumps that bleed and ooze and degrade and get infected, skin grafts that fail, and background pain mixed with moments of sharp, fizzing electric spasms. Then there's the disorientation of having phantom limbs that still send signals. In 1797, Admiral Nelson famously noted that after he lost his arm during the Battle of Santa Cruz de Tenerife, his lost fingers dug in perpetuity to the limb that wasn't there. Despite all of this, being less is also, Parker assures us, being more. And here the balance tips toward life and the technologies that put him back together. He marries, happily it seems. His world expands. He is now far more acutely attuned to other people's losses and to how they might be capable of adapting. He compares himself to a smashed vase that has been mended according to the Japanese technique of golden repair in which lacquer is mixed with gold to fuse the broken parts together. The cracks, the brokenness, imitating precarity and mortality, create value and even beauty, as well as ways to connect with others. He would not, he insists, rewind the clock, because he prefers the person he has become. He prefers his new mind. Parker's first book, a novel called Anatomy of a Soldier, published in 2016, cleverly plays with perspective, the objects of war and rehabilitation, a gun's viewfinder, a dog tag, a tourniquet, narrate human actions and emotions at a clinical distance. In hybrid humans, he does the opposite, filtering the world of disability enhancement through his own experience. He shows us, for instance, how it feels to have a microprocessor AI knee, a Genium X3, courtesy of the National Health Service, which is like a second brain in its ability to sense to one one-hundredth of a second the change from stance to swing phase, and thus to respond and move on its own without conscious instruction from him. A Genium X3 represents freedom, the ability to climb stairs while talking, to drive and go canoeing. Such freedom is expensive, however, 
and unavailable to most of those who might want it. Parker is inordinately lucky in his unluckiness. His latest prosthetic is an uncamouflaged blade that allows him to run. The sleek steel prosthetics give him something extra. He appears almost cyborg-like. In theory, the next iteration could enable him to run faster than ordinary humans. Parker reminds us that as a species, we have evolved for what he calls plug-and-play. All of us are coupled systems through our use of tools such as pen and paper, or the internet, or spectacles, or cars, which, like Parker's knee or his blades, we treat as part of ourselves. Think of how we instinctively crouch when entering a tunnel in a car. Plug-ins are also housed inside the body. 25 million people have indwelling medical devices in the United States alone. Joints, lenses, valves, pacemakers, stents, neural implants, artificial organs. Pharmaceuticals, too, are in some sense plug-ins, altering our chemistry. The contraceptive pill, for instance, changes what it means to be a human with a womb. Other pharmaceuticals modify how one thinks or the persona one can project. Parker could have said a great deal more here, but his focus is mostly on tangible interfaces like his own. In several chapters, he interviews and discusses people spurred to innovate or serve as guinea pigs or to do both. James E. Hanger, for instance, who lost his leg to a cannonball in the American Civil War. Not satisfied with a peg leg, he developed a prosthetic with hinges and rubber buffers. Hanger Incorporated is now a multinational company. Parker tells us about an engineer friend who lost both legs in Afghanistan and is now working at the cutting edge of smart sockets. This is not just a question of creating fancy devices, but of the user being able to forge the neural circuitry to manage, say, a bionic hand that can grasp objects. Half of amputees who try to use bionic hands give up. Low-level sensory motor skills that we take for granted, the turning of sensory cues into useful movements, are exponentially harder to model than higher-level reasoning. Parker also interviews those creating a post-socket future through a daring operation called osseo-integration, spurred by the plight of people, such as his friend and fellow veteran Jack, a triple amputee. Jack's amputations are so high on his thighs that he has never been able to balance effectively on sockets or to manage the pain. Feeling he has nothing to lose, he has opted for the risks of the outer frontier. A metal stem drilled into his femur, very dangerous, and prosthetics that can be attached with an Allen key, very convenient. He will now have to manage an open wound in perpetuity, and the constant threat of infection, which could easily kill him. It doesn't matter. Being able to walk transforms him from a listless invalid to a vibrant, upright, and mobile person, at least for a time. Then there is the cutting edge of AI brain implants. Tebow is paralyzed. He is willing to have two irreversible five-centimeter holes drilled into his skull in order to walk a few faltering steps in a lab in a 65-kilogram exoskeleton suit, controlled only by his thoughts. Parker imagines him sweating with exhaustion as he tries to move an avatar on a screen, and the scientists make changes to their codes and algorithms. Decades from now, Parker reflects, someone like Tebow may, as a result of this early work, be able to walk down a street. In the meantime, Tebow risks the only functioning part of himself, his brain, in order to be momentarily upright and part of a community involved in the march of science, until, as is likely, one or both of his implants fails, and the scientists move on to patient three. He is patient two. While experiments may begin with repairing broken bodies like Jack's or Tebow's, 
That is not necessarily where they will stop, any more than will iterations of Parker's knee or legs. These technologies are not, in fact, just a form of golden repair that preserves the shape of what a human is. They can enhance the human body and alter reproductive and lifespan clocks. AI-enhanced intelligence may heal and save, but it also may amplify inequality. It may become a tool of oppression and classification or be used in ever more autonomous weaponry that a flesh-and-blood we might neither control nor understand. In the last section of his book, Parker explores transhumanism, a philosophy and practice that treats aging as a disease and whose aim is to overcome human limitations, including frailty and death, by merging with machines. This is called emancipation. Transhumanism has gained extraordinary traction in the last decade because of advances in AI, regenerative medicine, nanomedicine, stem cell technologies, gene therapies, and in creating CRISPR-related tools. Nanobots can enter the bloodstream to tweak molecules. Stem cell therapies can, in theory, turn back the clock. Scientists have, as recently as 2022, de-aged human skin cells by 30 years. DIY gene therapies or CRISPR tools enable biohacking at increasingly affordable prices. The scientist at the center of Parker's discussion is Kevin Warwick, a genial cyberneticist at Coventry University, who is wildly enthusiastic about the body-hacking frontier. Warwick is colorblind and has an implant not just to repair this disability, but to extend his vision, to see the infrared and UV spectrum. A pioneer of silicon RFID chip transponders, he had one implanted into his forearm in 1998, to better explore what they might do. Radio frequency identification chip transponders are now in credit cards and are a feature, it turns out, of the tattooing and body modification worlds, as a circle of five LED lights, for instance, that shines through skin with certain types of music. Warwick is also, he says, motivated to improve the lives of the disabled, which is why he had a brain gate electrode array implanted in the median nerve of his forearm, wiring his nervous system to a computer to control a wheelchair and a robotic hand. Elon Musk's Neuralink brain-machine interface is along the same lines, but geared, too, to intervening in neurological diseases. Again, intervening doesn't stop at healing or fixing. Warwick would be thrilled, as no doubt would Musk, at the idea of enhancing his intelligence through implants or of being able to upload himself, creating compatibility between a nervous system moving at 100 meters a second and an electrical one moving at the speed of light. Like transhumanists in general, Warwick is cheerily optimistic about eventually finding a solution. Here, the usually empathetic Parker has trouble sharing Warwick's enthusiasm. He finds he can only think of the anxious disorientation he felt in the hospital from being attached to wires or the pain inherent in having sockets, and how it would be even worse to be a sentient being uploaded to a machine, never again to feel rain on his face. Warwick is also thrilled by the related idea of his immortal digitized self connecting out into a network of other minds. We'd understand each other perfectly, he excitedly tells Parker, who again wonders how this could possibly be a good thing. A techno-existential abyss seems to separate them. 
Warwick's vision of interconnected AI-enhanced minds floating together in spiritual communication is not, I discovered in Peter Ward's book, The Price of Immortality, rare at all. Ward includes a section about Nikolai Fedorov, the 19th century founder of Russian cosmism, who introduced the idea and is now considered a transhumanist prophet. Those in the thriving American terrorism movement Transreligion, or TMT, founded in 2004 by the highest-paid female CEO in the U.S., the gender-reassigned Martine Rothblatt, harbor Fedorov-like dreams of beaming human brains, rendered as digital mind files, into space, where they will spiritually perfect themselves, merging into an immortal superorganism. One of TMT's core beliefs is, we are making God with ever more powerful technology. It is virtually impossible to avoid two other transhumanist prophets in any discussion of the subject, both coined terms that shape how the movement's acolytes think. A product of MIT, Ray Kurzweil, coined the phrase, the technological singularity, which describes the moment when AI will surpass humans, leading to their merging in the creation of superpowered immortals. The showy Cambridge-educated Aubrey de Grey, described by Ward as a spider, at the center of everything related to age reversal, the scientific research itself, whether fringe or mainstream, the funding, the foundations, including one he founded, the Silicon Valley startups, the media, coined the term longevity escape velocity to describe the moment when life expectancy increases more rapidly in, say, 10 years, than the passing of those ten years. The transhumanists are trying to live until this moment, which might happen in 2035, says de Grey. Then the next, and the next, until they have thrown off their mortal coil entirely. They will become the Methuselarity, who avail themselves of rejuvenation therapies, and never suffer age-related ability. De Grey is almost 60, Kurzweil, 74. Ward's key contribution here is to remind his readers that religion has been in the immortality business since time immemorial, with everlasting life as bait for worship. Just before the pandemic, Ward visited the site of the Church of Perpetual Life in Hollywood, Florida, founded in 2013, and he opens his book with his rather remarkable interview with its founder and pastor, Neil Vanderee, a tall, sleek, soft-spoken man in his late 50s, who is also a real estate broker, and wants, he says, to live to at least 300 years. If good people live to 10,000 years, he earnestly enthuses, they can turn the planet around and create heaven on earth. Ward attends a service and notes that most members of the bustling congregation wear armbands, a signal that they are part of the divine elect, as it were. They have signed up to have their bodies frozen, cryopreserved at death. Faith is about believing that technologies of the future will indeed be able to reanimate them then return them to their youthful, pre-diseased selves. In the present, members are committed to delaying death. And so, in Vanderee's liturgy, scientific studies are delivered in the style of an American preacher. These studies, often conducted on mice and sometimes on yeast or flies, hold out the promise of reversing aging through, say, fecal transfer, young blood or stem cell infusion, by gene therapy or by ingesting the supplements of the moment. Elaborate supplement regimens and intermittent fasting are de rigueur, needless to say, and presumably serve ritualistic functions too. 
The aim is to live long enough to reach escape velocity, a form of judgment day, according to Ward, but to hedge one's bets with insurance for crypto preservation and hope for reanimation after the singularity. The congregants are mostly rapidly aging white baby boomers, hence the need for a great deal of positive thinking. Cryonics, writes Ward, was born in science fiction, in books such as The Jameson Satellite by Neil R. Jones, published in 1931, in which Professor Jameson launches his preserved corpse into space, where it is picked up tens of millennia later by aliens, Zoromes, which have transferred their brains into machines. The cryonist mind, suggests Ward, is often shaped by the specificities of such tales, typically absorbed in the mid-to-late childhood. It is also, he suggests, haunted by gruesome childhood encounters with putrefaction that have then become obsessive memories. Ward is tantalizing here, but one wishes for deeper analysis. Where he almost goes too far is in describing in minute and macabre detail the fiendishly comic steps undertaken by cryonics pioneers starting in the 1960s to freeze corpses at the moment of death, the infighting over methods and money. The expedient decapitations, euphemistically called neurosuspension, to make room for more corpses in small capsules, the melting or misplaced bodies, and the fraud. These passages are long, relentless, and hard to read. One wants to sputter, as Parker might, that even humdrum refugees on Earth have trouble with adaptation. The experience of being a reanimated out-of-context body without intimacy or shared memories or a sense of home is hardly likely to be conducive to one's ongoing a more proper, no matter the interstellar vistas. Won't the reanimated corpses pull their own plugs? And if not, what about overpopulation? To this, the cryonicist mind has a solution, averting overpopulation demands, at least on Earth, that only the fit should be reanimated, and mercy killings can take care of the rest. As an early cryonics pioneer wrote in 1964, Eugenics, one suspects, underlies many transhumanist fantasies, even those that feature the roominess of interstellar space. The life extension industry, notes Ward in a chapter entitled DIY Immortality, is as populated by fraudsters plying the placebo effect as it ever has been. But mainstream science is very much in the game, too, as is an enormous amount of venture capital. There were fewer than five investment deals in startups in the U.S. relating to life extension in 2013, according to research ward sites, and 25 in 2018. Since then, they've sprouted like mushrooms, with a purported $93 billion worth of investment in the U.S. alone. With $17 billion, China is second in terms of investment. Secrecy is part of the mix, as is the promise of enormous profits. One researcher interviewed by Ward Costas Costarellos, chair of nanomedicine at the University of Manchester, describes his eagerness to develop nanotechnologies for interfacing with the brain to cure Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, but is also terrified because he suspects his work will be weaponized. Nobel laureate speeches about making the world a better place through such innovations are superficial bullshit, he warns. Other scientists, however, are straightforwardly beguiled by the media hype around their work and its potential profits, including the Harvard geneticist David Sinclair, with his miraculous molecule resveratrol. A purported anti-aging elixir, resveratrol was shown to work on mice. Sinclair created a company, sold it, and made himself rich. 
Then it turned out his results couldn't be replicated in humans. It may be that increasing health span at scale, if it happens, will be an unalloyed social good. It would certainly suit you and me, and Harry Parker, who would surely like to delay the osteopenia and other ills that will plague him long before he is chronologically old. Ward is on board. It might help to equalize the genetic lottery, he remarks in passing. And as a moral imperative, it is already embedded in medicine's mandate to relieve suffering. At scale, it would solve the financial disaster inherent in an aging population. Yet there is a price to fiddling with mortality, even in this limited way. The old-in years, for instance, are likely to corner resources, housing, and jobs, creating more inequality, and who's to say they will docilely expire in the midst of health? Increasing health span will shade into increasing lifespan for the privileged. But these are short-term concerns. In the long term, 500 years? Our descendants will be post-flesh-and-blood electronic entities, wafting through the heavens, if some of the immortalist dreams described in these books come true. Eventually, even electronic entities are likely to malfunction, no matter how godlike they are. You have been listening to the TLS. This was Beyond Flesh and Blood, The Quest for Godlike Immortality, by Michelle Pridmore-Brown, from the issue of June 24, 2022. It was read by Sam Scholl for Noah. Secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria algae body oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.